Thank you, Yana and Michelle. My poor Michelle, I forgot it first. Um, thank you to her who took on piano um, for us last minute. Um, she did a beautiful job. So thank you, girls. Uh, this year, I'd like to introduce our speaker. And with it being our homecoming, when we started discussing, we wanted the speaker to be one of our own. So in discussing topics, the idea came to do Come Home for Christmas because of us coming back to our auditorium here. And there was the discussion of the story of the prodigal God, <clears throat> and Janet Travis did a study here on uh, that book. And some of you may have taken that study with her and know that the study and the topic and the story is actually very near and dear to Janet's heart. And that is why we're pleased to have her as our first speaker back home. Janet's a mother to three boys. As most of you know, but not all, she is Pastor Bob's wife. She's also a mentor, a teacher of God's word to many of you in this room. She's my friend, and it's my honor to introduce her to you today, Janet Travis. Thanks. Good morning. Hmm, so awesome to look out over all of you. I met someone this morning whose last name is Lovely. It made me think, that's you all, your last names should be lovely. It's just, it's a beautiful room, a beautiful place, and beautiful women. So thanks for being with us here this morning. Put your hand up if your last name in here really is lovely. Where are you? Over here. Her last name's lovely. I love it. Well, I'm really delighted to have the opportunity to be able to share with you this morning in a bit of a different form than I'm used to interacting with women, but I'm excited to be here. A lot of you out there have never met me before, so that introduction was pretty meaningless about those things that were said about me. So I'm going to give you a little glimpse into my life before I start. I come from a small family. I have just one older sister, and I've never been a particularly girly girl. And that's ended up serving me pretty well because for the last, more than half of my life, I've been surrounded by testosterone. <laughs> for the last more than 28 years, I've been married to a man many of you do know as Pastor Bob here at the church. Um, and I also am the mother of three 20-something-year-old sons. And in June, I became the mother-in-law of one delightful daughter. I have the privilege of serving as the director of women's ministry here at Riverstone. Um, I want to show you a picture. This is my oldest son's wedding back in June, and you'll notice that there are only two females in the picture, so I'm, stands, I'm standing on my word that I've been surrounded by testosterone. I have another picture to share with you. This is perhaps a more realistic view of my family. Um, this picture was our last year's Christmas picture. You can tell from the expression on some of our faces that a few of us were more delighted than the others to assume that pose. <laughs> well, the room you see in that photograph is my sunroom, and it's my favorite room in my house. And I really wish that I could make this expansive auditorium feel as cozy as that room. If I could, I'd invite you to take your seat on the love seat, and I'd take mine on the sofa. We'd probably be sipping cups of hot tea, We'd tell stories, we'd invite each other to peek into our lives, 
and we'd be better off for having spent that time together. A lot of life has been shared in that room. My sunroom is also the place where I take time to meet with God. What a comfort I find in listening to his words to me each day in the Bible, letting him examine my heart with them and responding to him as my loving father. I bring a lot of stuff into that room, pain, stubbornness, shame. There are days when I'm struggling to forgive or experiencing deep sadness over a loss and recently even experiencing the heaviness of a broken relationship. Sometimes God calls me out of complacency. Some other days he just reminds me of his abounding love for me. And some mornings he wows me with the wonder of his hugeness and my smallness, yet my significance to him. Well, I'm no genie and I can't actually transport all of you to my sunroom or make this huge room feel like a welcoming corner of my home. So this little piece of my sunroom will have to do. And we're going to have to use our imaginations a bit. I'll do my best to talk to you with the warmth and love I'd have for anyone that I'd invite into my own home. And I'd like to ask you to do your best to receive the words I have for you this morning like you would those of a friend who cares about you, where you've been, what you're experiencing today, and where you're headed. Well, as Amy mentioned, when we first started brainstorming about this morning's breakfast back in the early spring, this church building was under construction, and our church family was meeting off-site at a nearby university. We were eagerly anticipating the reopening of this building in June, feeling in a sense like we'd be coming home after living for seven months in somebody else's house. This morning's theme of Come Home for Christmas grew out of that brainstorming meeting. I think we'd all agree that coming home has a whole lot less to do with returning to a place we call home than it does with returning to the relationships that have made a place earn the title home in our hearts. For some of us, the thought of coming home might conjure up warm feelings that are founded on pleasant memories. But for others of us, I wonder if coming home might remind us of broken relationships decisions we've made that have had painful repercussions, and maybe a desire to stay away rather than really re-engaging. Well, there's a particular coming home story that I'd like to share with you this morning. And while it's very personal to me, I'm not actually a a character in this story. This morning, I want to share with you a well-known story from the Gospel according to Luke that we may know as the, the... parable of the prodigal son. A few years ago, I read a book by Tim Keller that Amy mentioned called The Prodigal God. And reading that book helped to deepen my understanding of the parable, and it convicted my own heart of my need for God's forgiving, embracing grace and love every day of my life. So you're going to find some of the insights that I've gleaned from that book woven throughout my message this morning. We need to pause a moment before we launch into reading this poignant story to clarify some background information that's going to help us understand the connections that Jesus makes throughout the parable. When we tell a story, we usually have a particular audience in mind. When I was preparing for this morning's message, I thought about you, what you might be bringing into this room in terms of how you think, what you believe, what drives your lives. 
And Jesus had a particular audience in mind when he told his story. His audience was a group of men known as Pharisees and teachers of the law. These were Jewish leaders, and they claimed to believe the entire Bible, the entire Hebrew Bible. They tried to obey all of God's laws, but often they pretended to be holier than they really were. They wanted to avoid people that they called sinners because they wanted to keep their own image clean. They obeyed many unimportant rules, but they often failed to grasp the heart of what's truly important to God. And that is what the story we're going to consider this morning will bring to light. They refused to listen to Jesus because he messed with their self-righteousness. They cared more about their religion than they cared about God. At the end of Luke chapter 14, there's a sentence just before the story we're about to read in Luke 15 that we have to consider before we hear the story. Jesus says to his audience, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he goes on in chapter 15 and we read about his audience. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus proceeded to tell him the story or, the pa- or parable. A parable is simply an earthly story that has a heavenly meaning. He spoke in parables to reveal the truth to those who really wanted to hear and also to conceal the truth from those who were indifferent. And in this story, that's the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Luke tells us that the tax collectors, and they were a group who was infamous for embezzlement and cooperating with the Romans, that the tax collectors and the sinners, who were people who didn't observe the moral law, that they had gathered around to hear Jesus, but that the religious people were muttering. This morning, I want to invite each one of you to lean in, to hear what Jesus has to say, to listen to the wonder of God's searching love. So let's pause for a moment, please, and would you pray with me? Father, Would you open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your word this morning? Open our ears that we would truly hear what you have to say to us. And open our hearts that we might see ourselves in this story, the story of your searching love, and comprehend our need for you, see you for who you are, and believe. Amen. And now the parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. Who sent him to the fields to feed his pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and was filled with compassion for him. 
He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You were always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Well, we learn in the introduction to this story that a certain father had two sons. And we get to know the younger one first, the one who went away. Not many of us would ask for our share of our parents' inheritance while they're still living. And this was a shocking request in Jesus' day, too. In essence, this younger son was saying to his father, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. I wish you were dead. This younger son wanted to set out on a search for happiness, identity, and meaning independent from his father. Amazingly, despite his son's rejection, his father honored his request. And soon after, the son gathered everything he had with no intention of coming back. And he went far, far away from his father. And he proceeded to live by himself for himself. We read that he squanders everything he had through an out-of-control lifestyle. But his search for fulfillment in all the wrong places bankrupts him. When he's literally down in the mud with the pigs, he comes to his senses. His hardship and his poverty wake him up to his true condition, he discovers that his problem is not that he's run out of food, but that he has run out on his father. As we listen in on the conversation that he has with himself, it's clear that he returns to his father not primarily because he's tormented by a guilty conscience, but because he is driven by the hope of mercy. He needs what he doesn't deserve. So he devises a plan. First, he says to himself, that he'll return to his father and he'll admit that he's been wrong, that he doesn't deserve to be part of the family, that he has sinned against his father and against heaven. This is not a generic expression of lostness, like everybody's messed up and so am I. It's very personal. He's saying, I'm guilty. Secondly, he intends to say, Father, I know I don't have a right to come back in the family to live in your house, but if you make me like one of your hired men, a low-level day laborer, so that I can earn a wage, at least I'll begin to start paying back my debt. So with this plan in mind, 
he sets off for home. And while he's still a long way off from the house, we read that his father sees him, is filled with compassion, and he runs to him. He throws his arms around him, and he kisses him. Can you picture that? What shocking initiative by his father. He was waiting for him, filled with compassion, ready to forgive and accept him. Locked in his father's welcoming embrace, he tries to roll out his plan for his restitution, but his father won't hear it. Instead, he orders his servants to bring him apparel that's fitting for a son and to throw a party to celebrate his return. In no uncertain terms, his father's saying, I'm not going to wait until you've paid off your debt and you don't need to beg and plead. You're not going to earn your way back into this family. I'm simply going to take you back. In a moment, the son goes from destitution to restoration. And on his father's terms, not on his own terms. Why would his father do this? The only reason the father gives is that his son had been dead and is alive again. He had been lost and he is found. That's grace. Hope of mercy had driven this younger son home, and he receives more than he ever could have imagined. I wonder if you're finding yourself in this story. Well, in the midst of this joyful scene, we're introduced to the father's older son. In contrast with his younger brother, this son has never gone away from his father, at least not physically. At first glance, he seems to be quite the opposite of his younger brother, He stays home with his father. He had been laboring in the field, doing his work, when his brother came home. And the party was going on when he returned. When the family servant tells him the reason for the celebration, that his younger brother has returned and has been reinstated by his father, he's so furious that he refuses to go into the party. That refusal would have brought great disgrace to his father in front of his guests. I hope you noticed that just as he had done with his younger son, this father takes the initiative with his younger son, I'm sorry, just as he'd done with his younger son, the father takes initiative with his elder son too. He goes out to him and he pleads with him to come into the party. But why is his older son so angry? His response to his father's pleading helps us to understand. He sees his father's action as unfair in light of his own faithfulness to his father. He sees himself as having slaved for his father, and he testifies about himself that he has always done his duty. He takes pride in his obedience and his moral record. From his point of view, he has done everything to earn his father's love, and he resents that his younger brother, rather than being expelled from the family, has gotten what he doesn't deserve. His father's display of mercy for his brother has made obvious his own long-standing estrangement from his father. This brother is lost close in, rather than being lost far away, and his self-righteousness keeps him from sharing in the feast. The father responds to his older son's bitterness and cold indifference with surprising tenderness. He affirms his older son's faithfulness and his special place in his heart, but he goes on to insist that they need to celebrate his younger son's return. 
Let me paraphrase what he says to his older son. Son, despite how you've insulted me publicly, I still want you in the feast. I'm not going to disown your brother, but I don't want to disown you either. I challenge you to swallow your pride and come into the feast. The choice is yours. Will you or won't you? And then the story ends. We're left hanging. What will the elder son do? This story's open ending is designed so that we're left to reflect. So let's do that. Think back with me to the two groups of people who were in Jesus' original audience. The tax collectors and sinners were the ones who were listening intently. They pursued personal happiness and fulfillment independent of God and the religious community. We can think of them as the younger son in the story. Their alienation and their rebellion against God is obvious. But you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them intently. The elder brother reminds us of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were muttering in Jesus' original audience. These were deeply religious men, externally keeping God's commands, yet full of self-righteousness. Unlike the tax collectors and sinners, they didn't see any need in themselves because they defined sin by outward actions, not inward heart attitudes. They saw obedience as a way to get control of God, as if they could put God in their debt. They hoped to earn blessings from God through their religion of good works, rather than relying on God's sheer grace. But Jesus is showing them that everyone in his audience needs the Father's embrace. And he's inviting us into the story. He's describing ways that we, both in our rebellion and in our self-satisfying moral behavior, turn our backs on God in one way or another. We're all lost. The only question is the extent to which we've wandered from the father's house. Both of the sons need to come home to the initiating forgiveness and love of their father. And like the sons in the story, we need the searching love and grace of God, each one of us. I wonder, where do you see yourself in the story? Do you know this God who swallows you up in his grace? Have you brought your utter unworthiness into the context of his lavish expression of love? What would coming home look like for you? Well, the story of the prodigal son, or perhaps better called the story of the forgiving father, is so poignant to me. I see myself in both the younger and older brothers in this story. So many evidences that I need God's forgiving, embracing grace every day. I'd like to tell you how God used a perfect storm in my life many years ago to begin to show me my need for his undeserved love and mercy and to help me come to my senses. That storm peaked in a dorm room full of college students where my reality and God's truth collided. It seemed like all my life I had felt less than, like I wasn't enough, like I should try harder and be better. I worked feverishly to make up for and to cover up for my inadequacies. 
I can recall feelings of insecurity all the way back to my early elementary school days. I used performance, which drove me to perfectionism, to try to prove myself and to earn love and acceptance from people. Using, using performance and perfection as my drug of choice came at the cost of my character. I wasn't above lying, manipulating, and cheating to create the facade that I was the person that I wanted other people to think that I was. But my drivenness was really a false friend, and it didn't deliver the security that I longed for. It created such anxiety that I quit college just four days into my freshman year, even though I had been valedictorian of my high school class. In relationships, I tried to be what other people expected me to be, doing whatever it took to stay on their wanted list. I gave away what I should have held dear, and I didn't let my own personhood emerge. Being a chameleon left me unsure of who I really was and doubtful of my worth. I had spent myself chasing what I wanted from other people, and I was empty. I was far away from the Father, but I didn't realize yet that I needed His love and grace. I pictured Him as holy and distant, with a list of rules that I should be keeping, someone to be feared, who had high expectations of me, but I didn't know him as my father. I needed to come home. So back to the dorm room scene. It's about a year after my first false start as a freshman, and I'm only at this meeting of Christian students to pacify a girl on my floor who would not give up inviting me week after week after week. In the midst of that group of students, I listened to these words from the Bible and listen to these words. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, a sacrifice to take away our sins. I was hearing the gospel the good news in a way I had never apprehended before. With new clarity, I was hearing what God had done in the life and the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, to deliver rebellious, self-sufficient people like me from the penalty our sin deserves and into his family. That evening, I did what the younger son did. I admitted to God that I had sinned against him and that I didn't deserve to be part of his family and I threw myself onto his grace. And he welcomed an insecure, performance-oriented young woman into his family. Well, that was the beginning of my Christian life. I had every reason to rejoice over my new life in God's family. But while I had accepted the reality that I couldn't do anything to get myself into God's family, to earn his love, except to run into his grace, I struggled to live in the reality that I couldn't do anything to stay in his family, to keep his love, except to rely on his grace. You see, I had stepped into my Christian life with my performance mentality in tow, trying to prove by my actions that I was a good Christian. 
I wonder if you can relate to me here, that old habits, old patterns seem to cling to us like Velcro. What is it about old habits that we mistakenly see them as a pathway to freedom rather than the bondage that they really are? That we're afraid of what we might lose if we leave them behind. That despite how harmful they are, we keep looking to them for life. In my case, my external actions hid the reality in my heart. I was self-righteous and proud. I was so accustomed to working to earn acceptance that I didn't trust God to keep loving me without continually proving myself worthy of his love. I'm grateful that I don't have enough time to tell you a whole lot about what that stage of life looked like for me. But in his kindness, God gave me a gift that propelled me into his grace. And that gift was bulimia. Bulimia was an outlet for my desire to control something when everything else in my life seemed out of control. After months that morphed into years of using food as a not-so-effective means of control, I came to the end of my self-sufficiency. I started to face the issues that I had stuffed for years, my longing to be seen and heard and held the pain of being hurt by people who said they loved me, and the sinful habits that I had developed in response. But I didn't face those issues alone. I faced them with my Heavenly Father. I developed healthy habits of running to God in His Word, learning to admit my weaknesses and my sin, crying out to Him in prayer, inviting other Christians to help me, and stepping into the security that Jesus gives me. I discovered that God's not looking for me to be perfect. He's looking for me to keep being driven back to him. I grew in trusting who he is and all he is for me. And he gradually set me free from the chains of my eating disorder. It has been many years since I've been in the grip of bulimia. But God's power to deliver me from sin and shame will never be old news. Throughout each day, I need to stay in his embrace and trust that I'm accepted by the one whose acceptance of me matters the most, and nothing can ever change that. Even when I'm the worst possible version of myself on any given day. Of course, your life doesn't look like mine, and maybe you haven't particularly related to my struggle with insecurity and self-righteousness. But no matter where you are, Far away from the Father and living for yourself, by yourself, or close by the Father, but relying on your own righteousness to get you into or keep you in the family. Every one of us, we all need the forgiving, searching love of the Father. God welcomes you to run into his love and forgiveness that can pardon and restore any and every kind of sin or wrongdoing or prideful self-righteousness. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done, there is no sin that is a match for his grace. Come home.
Well, when we started our time together, I urged you to use your imagination a bit as I invited you into my sunroom. And I've done my best to share the story of my life and God's word with vulnerability and honesty, as I would with anyone that I'd invite into my home. And I hope that you've heard my invitation, really God's invitation, to come home, no matter if you've been lost far away or lost close in. Thank you so much for celebrating Christmas with us this morning. It's a time of year when we sing songs like, Joy to the World, the Lord is Come. These are songs that celebrate God's plan for bringing sinful people like us to himself. That plan culminated in him sending his own son, Jesus, into the world to be our savior. Jesus is the only way to the accepting love of the Father. But Christians can never celebrate Christmas without Easter in view because the death and resurrection of Jesus accomplished God's plan to deliver us from our sin and made it possible for us to know the love of the Father. I hope that this morning you've grasped God's love for you more fully than ever before. Would you please join me in talking with God as I end my time with you? Father, we all need your embrace. No matter where we've been. Some of us have been far, far away. And we're beginning to realize that we're homesick. From that faraway place, would you draw close any woman here who finds herself there? Give her the grace to say, Father, I recognize that I am weaker and more sinful than I was ever before prepared to admit. And I'm realizing now that in the Lord Jesus, I am more loved and accepted than I ever dared to hope. Thank you for paying my debt, bearing my punishment, for offering me forgiveness. I turn from my sin and I receive you as my savior. And for any woman here this morning who has been living in your own backyard, putting on the disguise of a Christian, relying on her own righteousness to give her a place or keep her place in your family, would you draw close to her and give her the grace to see that behavioral compliance to rules without heart change is superficial and fleeting. And that she needs your lavish, accepting love as much as the prodigal. Thank you, Father, for the message of this parable. I pray that you will accomplish the purposes of your word in each of our lives today. Draw us to yourself with the wonder of your outstretched arms. Amen.